I will be frank. Usually, I sometimes I wouldn't say lie, but creatively enhance reality to make it more plastic so that it expresses yeah. an idea. But yeah. you know what shocked even me, an old keeper, that there I didn't lie. It's true. Let's, okay, briefly renew it. So, 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 yeah. So, yeah. So you're, visiting, you're visiting Assange in prison, and uh, the, the guard brought you a cup of coffee, and you took off the lid, and, you know, then put it down on the table in front of you. And okay. they, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you had a sip, yeah, you put yeah, it down yeah, like yeah, you, know, yeah. you do. And, yeah, yeah. And, they said, uh, and they made you put the lid back on, like they made a big deal of it, and then they... In a very friendly way, I must emphasize this. Sure, sure, sure. But in a very friendly way, you know, they made sure immediately that you put the lid back on. Yeah. And then the explanation afterwards was that because he was this dangerous prisoner, you know, that you couldn't have, you know, hot coffee in between you or, or you know, your safety. You know, yes, would be jeopardized. They may throw it into my face, yes. <laughs> this is, for me, a simplified but perfect metaphor of where we are today. Even the way we are controlled and so on, of course, everything is done in our... Everything is done for our health, safety, profit, and so on and so on, yes. But may I uh, add another funny remark? I hope they will not be mad at me at our books. No, I also like the book, I think, as to content. It has more diversity. It's better than my other two of these short political books with our pandemic one, pandemic two. But I have problem with the cover, not only this Maoist identification, you know, but look at the expression of my face, a kind of embittered wisdom, you know. <laughs> I, I look with trust and come, sorry guys, that's not me. I'm not like that. You know what I mean? I more and more believe the only thing when you are really in danger are dirty jokes. Yeah. Not because of potential racist content and so on, but again, my own point, when you are really in deep shit, mm -hmm. you cannot afford what is usually called dignity. <laughs> dignity presupposes a certain safety, and I always use this example. Imagine in Auschwitz, a Nazi wants to beat you and a poor, emaciated, half-dead Jew, God, stands up and tears off his shirt and say, yes, do whatever you want, but you will never kill my freedom desire. It's ridiculous. You are too, too, too humiliated, too in such a horrible position that you cannot afford the spectacle of dignity. So that's my... I, but okay, let's go on. I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, no, I, no. That was that was good. So uh, I so just follow that book because one line of the book is also uh, remarks on political correctness, mm -hmm. uh, actual. Some people call it revolution. Some people call it counter revolution today, and so on. So uh, not to. Improvise, because I noticed, you know, when I improvise, when I think I'm thinking freely, and that should be a general lesson, isn't it? the rule, 
it usually means that I'm repeating myself without knowing it. <laughs> the only way not to repeat myself is to look at the text and somehow at least guarantee something new. I noticed a couple of things, a couple of things uh, happened to me lately, which I think are not mega important, mm-hmm. but are an indication of where we are sadly going. First, it's a light one, light remark. Mm-hmm. But it has something said about it, and I know it's, again, in my style, suicidal, you know, people will claim, oh, he admits he is a sexist. I think the lesson is exactly the opposite one. A philosopher friend of mine, mm-hmm. I will not name him, but it's from United States, not even here. I couldn't imagine the things like this still happen today. Uh, uh, told me via Zoom what happened to me to him recently. He was giving a lecture which went pretty well, but left some enigmatic point unexplained at the end. Okay. And then, obviously, a fan of him, a nice young lady, told him, approached him after the talk and told him jokingly, if you explain all this to me at the coffee table afterwards, I will be so fascinated, like, you can fuck me. You can have sex. Now, the guy did what? He took a restrained stance and explained things to her, but with no sex. He told her that doing it to get sex as a payment would amount to sexual exploitation and so on and so on. He was very correct. Okay, they parted. Nothing happened. Then later, because he knew some other students' friends and so on, later he learned from this lady's friends that far from being impressed by his honesty, he was furious at him. What she complained to her friend is that she really wanted sex. And she just playfully mentioned the explanation as the price he should pay to avoid the vulgarity of directly asking for sex, you know. It doesn't look so desperate if you propose a deal. And I think such ambiguities, this happens, is what eludes the politically correct stance. What if women are not just victims of male predators? What if they also can subtly or no so subtly provoke men? And why shouldn't they do this? Why should? And this is always repeated in politically correct discourse, discourse except for cases of rare cases, but even then women are attacked, but it's much more ambiguous what happened. Avital Ronel and that gay person and so on, you remember or when uh, 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 in all these uh, archaic scenes of uh, political correctness, a woman is as a rule always uh, 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 attacked, molested by a man and then it's all this problem of consent. It all turns around about what really is consent. Mm-hmm. 
with the minute. Why should men not give consent? Why should a woman not be the one who demands it? Isn't you can correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this practically totally absent? As far as I see, do you know some? I'm sincerely now. It's not this arrogant rhetorical question where I'm mm-hmm. asking you to confirm what I already know. Did you find any of this scenes uh, 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 of uh, or descriptions of opposite situation? Why are women always depicted as those who as those who have or have not to give? Consent. Why shouldn't women also have a desire if they have it for whomever, women, women, other women, men, and somehow express desire? That's why you may remember in one of my previous books, I forgot which one. Mm-hmm. It's not a thief in broad daylight. Mm-hmm. I describe this scene in a, I've only seen it from outside, but I wouldn't be ashamed to go into it. Although not mm-hmm. business, you know the cafeteria that really exists in Sao Paulo mm-hmm. is a sexual work, prostitution place. But it's incredible how it works. I cannot imagine coming closer to not feminism, but more justice at least. You are a customer. You go in, sit at the table. And mm-hmm. you do nothing. What's the key? Close to this cafeteria, there is a university with a large humanities department. And mm-hmm. later there are students who need money. Mm-hmm. They sit behind the bar and they look at you. Obviously, if you sit there at the table, you want sex. They observe you. Mm-hmm. If they find you attractive enough, Mm-hmm. They come to you and, ah, ah, not directly, what's your price? They start to, they start a conversation with you. Usually mm-hmm. about humanities, do you know that there were, so I was told, even one or two who specialized in Lacanian psychoanalysis and uh, one of them mentioned me, I was told. Because <laughs> he told this to her friends who told to other friends who told me and then if they see that you are also like educated not an idiot then the woman not you says okay we can do it this is my price I mean within this alienated institution of sexual work isn't this pretty good how should I put it yeah, I mean, as, as prostitution goes, that, that does sound like yeah. Let's not avoid a misunderstanding. I'm here very romantically sentimental. Uh, I am against prostitution. I may tolerate the idea, and there are persons like that, men and women, who want sex, real sex, blah, 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 with all the fantasies and so on, but with no emotional involvement. Sure. And the idea, and here then money is not so much a payment. It Mm -hmm. plays a role similar to the role money plays in psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. If you pay the analyst, the function is to maintain a psychic distance, you know. 
You don't become friends, you don't chat, and so on and so on. It, and if I may repeat another old story, my favorite, uh, Freud's big example, <coughs> Wolfman, his most famous patient. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a negative proof of Freud's thesis. You know that mm -hmm. Freud was right when he said that money has a role, namely, after the October Revolution, Wolfman, who was a Russian citizen, because of the October Revolution, his family lost all money, and he was all of a sudden in Vienna with Freud, poor, with no money. Mm -hmm. Freud, being basically a decent, good guy, started to support him financially. The result was the fiasco of the analysis. Because, as it is expected, Wolfman became paranoid. Like, my God, why is the analyst paying me? Why? What is it in me? Does he have any plans with me? Right. Like Freud then learned what were these plans. Sorry, this paranoiac yeah. uh, imagination, what projected to him. Uh, a couple of times, Wolfman met Anna Freud, the young, she was still young then, Freud's mm -hmm. daughter, on the staircase. So his paranoia was, it's almost a beautiful one, that it's all part of big Freud's plan for him to become sexual partner of his daughter. <laughs> like, he wants me to screw his daughter so that it will be somebody whom he, Freud, father, controls through psychoanalysis so that he will control the entire situation and so on. But you see, and now comes a nicer part. Uh, you know who saved Wolfman? Mm. I forgot her name. Muriel Gardiner was mm. a very progressive American woman mm -hmm. who worked with Freud and uh, was in Vienna and then later was actively involved risking her life in anti-fascist struggle. I don't know if you saw the movie uh, 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 she was played by Vanessa Redgrave in a movie. I forgot her name. Who was the wife or the partner? So, so, sorry, what movie are you talking about? Uh, I'm trying to remember it. Uh, 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 I think it was Jane Fonda who was who was that writer. My God, American writer Dashiell Hammett, and okay. who was the writer? I had it on the tip of the tongue. Who was his partner? And she was involved in smuggling something through Germany. And in Vienna or later, she moved to Berlin, which was already Nazi Berlin. This character, Nuriel Gardiner, helped her smuggle it. And so she was a heroic leftist and very good analyst. She yeah. saved the guy, the Wolfman. She saved him. So again, the result is uh, no goodness. Another thing, if we are here with all this stuff, consent sets and so on, this yeah. I found good in new Badius book, with which I have many problems about today's disorientation in politics, where he says that isn't the big problem of this new feminist discourse of uh, consent and so on, that it's all about sex very rarely, if at all more in a negative way, very rarely they touch the topic of love. 
Mm-hmm. In, in, but you, and especially I, would be here very open. This doesn't mean kind of a cheap religious way. Love brings us to another sacred dimension, no exploitation, no violence. No. Love also can imply quite a lot of emotional exploitation, brutality, and so on. But it's another dimension. And I find it so strange that, more or less, with the exception of Laura Kipnis, who already 20 years ago well, wrote a book against love. Mm-hmm. They, they ignore this topic. Okay, this is yeah, my... So, 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 so I, I mean, I think the, I mean, the discussion... Um you know, about, uh, you know, about prostitution and, yeah. uh, and all of that, I mean, does, does, does make me think, right. I mean, like, cause, cause the version, you know, like, like some of what you're describing was, okay, here's like kind of the, you know, maybe, uh, one of the most civilized versions of it that exists or, you know, here's, here's a yeah, role. Like to avoid the misunderstanding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, cause, cause I think, I think this is interesting because it, it seems to me, maybe you disagree, that uh, yeah. the, that a lot of the left right now has uh, gotten a little strange on this topic. That the uh, that like oh, people, maybe. I'm not informed enough. Maybe so, I don't. So so, so so people, um, I see a lot of it, like people insisting that like uh, that you know like they'll only refer to it as sex work and like, you know, there, there's this sort of strange insistence that it's no more exploitative than, than anything, you know, mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that there's, there's real, that there's just no difference, you know, between, you know, between that and, and other jobs. And, and I, I guess I, I guess I do wonder if, uh, if there's a kind of strange, um, you know, there's a kind of strange tension here between like the way that, uh, the way that a lot of leftists uh, have gotten just very, very libertarian on this mm-hmm. this topic, and um, and that you know, kind of more general, uh, you know, concern about consent that you're talking, you know, that you're talking about, because because after all, right? I mean, if if you, I mean, if you, I mean, certainly, you know, certainly, if you're anything like a Marxist, you know, you you understand that economics can can take away meaningful consent as, as much as anything can, right? You know, just... just That's my first problem, yes, because as Marx emphasized, you know, the famous quote from Capital that uh, market exchange is the realm of freedom, equality, and so on and so on. Yes, the first thing is this uh, problematic neutral use of the term consent. There can be so much pressure in consent and not just the obvious one, like, I need money and formally consent. It can be other emotionally much more tricky ways to enforce uh, consent. But again, let me repeat Lenin again. You know that probably in one of my past encounters with you, I used it already. That uh, joke, the idea was that it was a conversation between the sexually liberated feminist Alexandra Kolontai and Lenin, where she said in a, among us, emancipated people, sexual act should be no more than uh, drinking a glass of water. You have a need, you satisfy it immediately. And you probably know what Lenin's answer was. Yes, but nonetheless, I wouldn't like to drink water from a glass from which another person just <laughs> drink water. Okay, it can be taken even a little bit 
conservative, but sure. where I agree with Lenin, ich, it's not this, no. I want to screw my wife, not a, a lady, only if others are not screwing her. No, it's simply an awareness that even if you can describe it as a consensual exchange or whatever, sex shatters you too immediately. You are existentially too open. You, it never really worked like that or... Yeah, I mean, I mean, if, if, if nothing else, it might just be un unrealistic to think that human beings are ever going to, like, not read anything into this beyond any other interaction. Yeah, but as Alenka Zupantri was asked the same question, he told me at the recent debate, also pointed out there is always troubles with sex, and the desire of this consent version is, again, to construct a kind of a neutral sex and my result, I know we already talked about it, is that and I think this is the secret model of this consensual mo uh, consensual notions of sex, it's good just that it's consensual, is that there is only one version of sex which fully fits it. It's called sadomasochist contact. Now I come to uh, a thing probably known to all Americans, it's interesting how here it was ignored. Probably it's already dying out in the States. You remember, the last days of December, uh, the nationalist rightist, Steve Cortez, not my kind of a guy, tweeted a photo of AOC, Alessandria Ocasio-Cortez, her boyfriend, Riley Roberts, mm -hmm. how they are enjoying their Christmas break in Florida. And his comment was, her guy is showing his gross pale male feet in public, not at the pool or beach, with hideous sandals. That was his comment. Now, AOC quipped back on the last day of the last year, on December 31st. I quote her. If Republicans are mad, they can't date me, they can just say that instead of projecting their sexual frustrations onto my boyfriend's feet. You creepy <laughs> End of quote. Now, as one can expect, her reply triggered mixed reactions. One user responded. And I think there is a moment of truth in it. Reactionary, yeah, of course. I, I agree. <laughs> Bold move. When people disagree with uh, my policy positions or call me a hypocrite, I tell them they just want to fuck me as well. End of quote. Then another responded. This is more tricky. Another probably Republican concern. There is a moment of truth. Why did your mind automatically go to dating you and sex? That's very conceited. End of quote. I think at some level, we must admit it, this is true. It was so, AOC who brought sex into a situation which was at least explicitly not sexualized, reading Republican attacks on her policy positions as the expression of their frustration that they cannot uh, date her. And incidentally, now comes my first comment. I need yeah. your open reaction here. Okay. I think that 
even if he may be right, I think she is an attractive woman, so fuck it. We are made of red flesh. We have desires. When, uh, sure. I think her reasoning was not correct. Don't okay. you agree that there is another more probable version? I try to imagine it. Her Republican critics primarily disagree with her policies. But as most of men, they notice her sexual attractiveness. So they implicitly at least bring in sexuality to devalue her argumentation in accordance with the standard male chauvinist wisdom that women are stupid. Something like to sex. You are nice there, avoid argumentation which is beyond your league. So I think it's not, it's not that behind political disagreement it's sex. I, I, I would like to screw her. I cannot get a chance. It's, the sec, so. it's behind, behind the sex, there's political disagreement. Behind, yeah. What do you think? Please, I'm open here. It's not yeah, against... No. I, I think I think there's probably some truth to that. I, I think that I would say that I I do I mean look, I think that there's a reason why and and I, you know, definitely have some criticisms of AOC when we get into that, but I also do think the reason why so many um you know, so many people who disagree with her fixate on her. I mean, why why aren't they talking about uh you know, Rashida Tlaib, or why aren't they talking about, you know, other people who uh, who have all the same positions that uh, that she has? You know, I think part of it is that, I mean, I think, you know, I think a sexual fixation probably is part of it. I mean, that seems realistic to me. That said, I do agree with you, right, that the, that probably, um, you know, that, that probably a lot of it is, you know, that she's a prominent figure, they hate her politics, this is something they reach for you know, to uh, to respond to that. And I'm not sure how serious she was about the thing about her boyfriend's feet. I oh, think that it was... Another, uh, here okay. I have okay. another problem with her. Uh, uh, I agree with you. The enigma is, did she make this move towards sex in an ironic way, kind of a political PR manipulation? Or did she really think what she wrote? Sincerely, my answer is she was just faking it because if she really meant it, she's in trouble. You know, like you know, I think think she she might have thought that there's a there's a germ of truth, but she's also having fun with it. That, like, in other words, like she might think that in general there is something a little bit you know sexual about Republicans' fixation with her, and so that's like what she's she's riffing off of for the joke, but she also. You know, but that and like because the feet thing is a little bit too perfect as a I will go to that. That's the true mystery. Yes. <laughs> you know, what I find problematic is that <clears throat> again, she brought sex into it. And that's always a dangerous move because one of the Republicans answered her very brutally. Sorry, AOC, I absolutely don't want to date you. Now what could she have answer to this. Now, deep in your unconscious, you want to really or whatever. But now, you, Ben, you came to the crucial point. This uh, Riley's foot, really, I saw the photo, you can get it, uh, really pro- 
the truth sticks out a little bit excessively in the photo which was tweeted, kind of a reference to food fetishism. But here uh, I find things nicely ambiguous. Cortes, not she, Cortes, that uh, Steve, the bad guy, the Republican, who made this move from AOC to Riley's foot. She, she, did, she didn't notice her. She noticed his foot protruding. Uh, uh, could, should have made AOC mad for another unexpected reason. I like this cynical manipulative reasoning. I hope it was her. That she was really mad at him for not focusing on her beauty. She sees me there and look at what the guy thinks that stupid food there. <laughs> The implicit sense of her surprise, why the food could be, I'm the real beauty if in the image. So why do you men even mention that stupid naked uh, food of my lover and so on and so on? And I think this, I would focus on this. You know, this is very suspicious how the guy all of a sudden, obviously talking about sex, goes to the image. But I agree with you, it is part of my non-politically correct stance that I absolutely don't uh, disagree with such gentle manipulations and so on and so on. I'm just saying you have to be a little bit careful, no? because you never know. You are uh, you are, I wonder, do you know, were there or not some politically correct reactions to her? I haven't followed it so much in depth. What, what do you mean by, by that? Like what kind I of believe right, it means some critical comments uh -huh. towards her also. Oh, uh, not that I've... This incident. Not, yeah, not that I've said... You know, yeah, like nobody, uh, nobody wanted was trying to, uh, you know, say that she was kink shaming this Republican for, uh, you know, for 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 loving her boyfriend's feet. Uh, yeah, no, I, well, I have not this data, but generally about that incident, she was not uh, uh, criticized because again, no, no, no. Uh, okay, I will put it like this: in a normal society, without this twisted political correctness. Such a reaction as hers should have, would have been normal, I think. Nice. Of course, you include this type of irony and so on. And there is a great tradition of these dirty jokes, even nicely made in American politics. I think I didn't use this one with you. You remember, no, you're too young, maybe, when he, he Edward Kennedy, Ted, the last one, mm -hmm. before he died, he was very promiscuous, sexually active. So his position was, of course, at that point, 20, 30 years ago, already uh, 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 more or less ecological. For example, he was strictly opposed to uh, offshore drilling in Louisiana. Yes. You know the story for oil, deep sea oil, no? Okay. Okay. You know what then happened? She was caught by a paparazzo on camera, sitting on a boat outside New Orleans in deep water, screwing the lady, unambiguously. Her 
he lying on her her legs around him. A couple of days later, he had a appearance in Senate. And in a reaction, you know what a Republican said? Uh, I laughed. It was in, a Republican senator said, I'm glad to hear that uh, our esteemed colleague has changed his position of offshore drilling. Drill. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I mean, don't yeah. in a normal society, this should be possible. Yeah. But you know what really worries me? Let's now drop sex a little bit yeah. and go to another much yeah, more... Before we before we do that, I, I just I just uh, you know you were talking about AOC, and and I am I am curious uh, what you think these days about you know AOC and the squad and all of that because 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 it, it it does seem to me right I think that there are I think that there are many sort of uh, ultra left criticisms of AOC and the squad that are just kind of stupid yeah, yeah. That, they, uh, that people will. You know, like people are angry at them for not doing things they really don't have the power to do and all that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do think that there is kind of a disturbing um, shift, uh, maybe politically. So my friend um, Branko Marketic had this um, uh, pointed out. You know, these these two quotes to me. Uh, this is an old tweet, but you know, he you know he brought it up in a conversation the other day. AOC uh, quote. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So, uh, so he. So the first of these two quotes I want to read you is uh, is from AOC answering a question about the 2016 election, about Trump winning in 2016. Yeah. And here's what she said then. Social instability is a direct result of wealth inequality, and bigotry is largely a result of poverty and scarcity. I know it may, this may be hard to believe, but take refuge in the fact that sexism, racism, and xenophobia did not win last night. She's talking about Trump's victory in 2016. Yeah. There were attendance to a larger stage. What one was the, uh, if you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So like, so so she's making this like very traditional leftist point about um, about bigotry and demagoguery ultimately being a result of of uh, sort of misdirected anger about wealth yeah. and equality. Yeah, this is traditional. Yeah, sure, sure. Okay. Now the second quote is um, is from AOC. Uh, talking about uh, the uh, the Trump vote. I mean, obviously he lost the election, but like the larger yeah, yeah. Trump in 2020, right? So this is four years later. And she says, um, uh, uh, but um, we know that race is a problem and uh, avoiding it is not going to solve any electoral issues. We have to actively disarm the potent influence of racism at the polls. Uh uh, and the interviewer asked her, is there anything from Tuesday that surprised you? And she says, the share of white support for Trump. I thought the polling was off, but just seeing it, there was the feeling of realizing what work we have to do. We need to do a lot of anti-racist, deep canvassing in this country, uh, because if we just keep losing white shares, and just allowing Facebook to radicalize more and more elements of white voters, and the white electorate, uh, you know, et cetera. And all I could think reading all this is, um, is that this is... This seems like a disturbing to me uh, regression in her politics that that like the, in the first quote, look, you can say the first quote is a little bit of an oversimplification of what happened yeah. and there's some legitimate criticisms you could make. But uh, but I think the, the politics of it are so much more useful, right? Because it's, it's staying focused on economic inequality that affects the majority of people and that they're, you know, sort of good socialist uh you know, solutions to, and, and the second one is 
all about how um you know people are just voting for trump uh because they're too racist and and, and we need to and we need to just uh somehow or another you know like make uh you know work on the racism in their heads you know like 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 in other words like the first quote suggests that the solution is to appeal to the economic interests of a majority of people and the second quote suggests that the that the problem is is just that like people have you know too many thought problematic thoughts in their heads and you know you need to fix that first and that does seem like a big shift in her politics and it does seem like one from my perspective at least in the wrong direction i totally agree with you and uh, it's also a strangely naive view it's the old liberal democratic view that uh, uh and uh, oh, sorry before i get confused uh, the tragedy is this it's even maybe more tragic than you think that that if we were to ask her aoc directly she probably wouldn't have even seen the contradiction mm-hmm. for her it would simply be yes white people are economically poor white frustrator Uh, racism is giving them an easy way out and so on so okay let's work on them let's reconvince them and so on and so on i think i first i totally agree with you that sorry i will now speak in the worst lacanian jargon but that she passes from this i agree with you simplified but nonetheless fundamental marxist insight which i think doesn't mean that you put racism into secondary role as my friend fred glenson developed it nicely you cannot talk about class struggle today in the united states without mentioning at least anti black racism and it's not this superficial racism of how you treat blacks afro pessimists see this very well it's a much deeper ground level racism practiced even practiced even by well meaning liberals in the very way they treat blacks in, even if they are when they are friendly they are patronizingly friendly and so on and so on so uh, but then in the second part she changes into sorry for this jargon a totally different discourse she almost speaks as a electoral campaign organizer you know we have a problem here we should put more effort in this and so on and so on and uh, it's not so much that i want to brutally oppose uh, focus on class struggle and convincing people about their uh, racism and so on and so on but uh, racism itself is a much more serious thing which uh, you cannot simply do it by and that's what worries me in her case it's simply we need better propaganda and this right. is an old democratic problem it started with reagan where this big shock how comes that even poor white people or even some blacks and so on uh, are that we are losing them that they are going to republicans and even i forgot his name some well known 
semiotic, linguists even follow this line, even sorry, forgot, uh, getting old and senile. One of them wrote a proposal to the Democratic Party. Oh, wait, you're talking about, was it George Lakoff and... Uh, yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know, this naive idea, the problem will be solved if you will be solved if you follow my proposal on how to better do the propaganda and so on and so on. Now, as nonetheless a psychoanalyst, I would say that there is so much than more argument than than just argumentation and so on in uh, in racism. Racism is not something that you can directly fight through argumentation. Arguments are very ambiguous, very ambiguous thing here. Because as a psychoanalyst, again, I would immediately add the point of enjoyment. At everyday level, racism is about stealing. Others want to steal our enjoyment. You call it these days our way of life, others as a threat, or the others enjoy in perverted ways and so on and so on. There is no racism without enjoyment. Where by enjoyment, I don't mean, mean sexual enjoyment. I mean this deep satisfaction brought about by racist and sexual fantasies and racist and, uh, 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 and sexual ritualistic practices and so on and so on. And if you combine this with, of course, economic interest and so on, you get something which is much harder to do than through mere electoral rhetoric. We have to move, move to this level because my friend Adrian Johnston, otherwise Hegelian Lacanian philosopher, pointed out nicely in what strange situation we are today. So often, I will not get lost, but this is my old motive. It's not even any longer the fetishism, fetishist disavowal, in the sense of je sais bien mais quand même, I know very well, but it's a uh, a kind of a knowledge, I quote Alenka Zopankis here, knowledge itself becomes a fetish. Let's, you know, where you include into being a racist or sexist a reflexive awareness of what you are doing. Let's say I'm doing something which is clearly triggered by some repressed mechanisms, and then you attack me for it. And then my answer is simply, yes, I know. I know, I know what I am doing. I know I'm not doing what I should have done. I know, I know. And this knowing it serves as something that enables you nonetheless to do it. I think there is a weird mechanism here of how directly against the early Marxist and Freud, Freudian presuppositions, knowledge, we have to return to these old distinctions, Freudian and Marxist, between abstract knowledge, knowing something doesn't in itself mean liberation. Knowing something can also serve as justifying the way what you were doing before. Just You can say, no, you're not telling me anything new. I know it. Ah, and then you go on knowing it, you know. The same problem was already detected by Freud relatively Quickly, because the early Freud's idea was, I have a symptom. When you explain the meaning of the symptom to me, 
symptom will disappear. Then Freud noticed it doesn't work like that. You rationally accept the meaning of the system, but the symptom persists simply, you know. <clears throat> so I'm not becoming here an irrationalist in the sense of deep mystical psychic change. I'm just saying there are different types of knowledge. There is knowledge where you know something very well, but it doesn't engage you personally in the sense of acting upon it. And that's, I think, the big problem today, even with ecology and so on and so on. We obviously all know it, you know, there will be global warming, blah, blah, blah. But in some paradoxical sense, knowing it enables us to go on like before, because then you criticize me and say, yeah, yeah, I know it, I know it, and so on and so on. It's, it's a, a situation which is very worrying, I think. Yeah. So, so I mean, I think that in the in the case of uh, racism and you know and yeah. and, and, tr and Trump voters, uh, yeah. which, which you know, to be absolutely clear, like of, I mean, of course, um, you know, I mean, of course, Trump was <laughs> appealing to uh, to racism quite a bit, you know, in uh, in the. Yeah, but at the same time, he mixed knowledge. Did you know somebody else sent uh, me a comment? A liberal uh, standard comment, but it, uh, uh, but it, uh, in a very naive way, mostly through quotes. I forgot the guy's name. Sorry. He pointed out very nicely how, if you translate Trump into his basic, not rational, but whatever argument, racism and so on, you lose his attraction, and his attraction was not just in masking it, but. Mm -hmm in playing a joker, making fun of himself, dirty jokes, uh, that Trump's disgusting humor is not secondary to his success. It's part of it. So you cannot say that his obscenities, dirty humor is just a secondary mask. No, it is here as a crucial moment, which also in some sense uh, demobilizes possible critique, because Trump goes pretty far here, you know, like he says something as a joke, which is racist, and then a couple of times, you remember, he did it then, when he was attacked for racism, he said, but don't you see, I was joking, blah, 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 and so on, he's totally, he was totally sleazy here, Trump, you know, so what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that, uh, is that uh, I, uh, I don't think that this direct appeal to real interest works, because you know, the paradox of our libidinal economy desire is that we are ready to swallow quite a lot to get libidinal perverted satisfaction, even if it goes clearly, and we are aware of it, against our interest. Isn't an old leftist thesis that mm. the triumph of ideology is that this famous middle-lowing low, uh, uh, mid-lower classes, whatever they, by voting Trump they are systematically voting against their interests at the end they, they are the big losers of the transformation of the last decade and so on and the paradox is that you even cannot say that they are not aware of it 
it's at a different level. So here I would uh, complicate things. But uh, can I go to an, sorry, can I go to another point so that we don't run out of time? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I just wanted to say, like, yeah. uh, just, just to wrap up the, the other point yeah. that, like, I think that, um, uh, yeah, and, and I mean, I think the point about ideology and self-interest yeah. is probably too interesting to get into now because it'd be too long a discussion, but I yeah. think that they, uh, but, um, but I, I, I do, I do think, um, I do wonder if we often overestimate the role of, of ideology as opposed to people just making like short-term rational decisions about like how they, they have no particular reason to think that more radical change is possible. And so, you know, in, you know, because of, you know, it's a collective action problem. And, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's all kind of, you know, like, you know, whatever the prisoners and the prisoners dilemma, right. They're not being irrational. It just ends up going against their self-interest. But as I said, that'd be a much longer discussion. Sorry, allow me, very short. I agree agree with you. The only thing, and I hope we agree here, I would like to add is that it's not, this is not just a psychological phenomenon, but this short-term reasoning Uh. is in itself a signal of a certain global ideological situation where people simply no longer believe or take seriously any big cause you think in short terms. This short-term thinking is itself part of the situation. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not just a psychological failure or whatever and so on and so on. But uh, what really, now I will conclude with an anecdote which is embarrassing to me. Okay. I mean, so so, I mean, so 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 sorry. Before we get the anecdote, Slavo, can, yeah. can I just say I, I I wanted to uh, you know on the on the point about the Trump voters, uh, all I was going to yeah. say is is that uh, is that I think the problem with uh, you know with focusing mm-hmm. on you know the the bigotry is not that it's not there; mm-hmm. it's that the it's that what that feels like, you know, saying like, like that AOC quote, the anti-racist deep canvassing, you know, that like what that feels like is um, I think from the perspective of the voters you're trying to, to reach out to is just kind of a moral attack, you know, that they're, that, that you're telling them that they're bad people. And even if they can see your point or whatever, you know, like that's, that's, that, that's your, they're just not going to be very receptive to that. Uh, whereas if you, if you appeal you know, if you if you make the the economic appeal, which don't get me wrong, it's not going to work for everybody. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. going to work for tons yeah, yeah. of people. But they have a. Yeah. But if you make that, I think that that has a much better chance of being packaged together with better you know racial attitudes because instead of just like morally attacking somebody, you know, you're presenting you know just a more appealing vision of what politics should you know should be about. And and that just seems like it's going to be much more likely to entice whoever's capable of being enticed. I agree with you here and I give you a proof. Isn't this when he was more active? Isn't this the formula of Bernie Sanders' success? Mm-hmm. He was talking this economic language very concretely, and it's incredible what wide resonance he found. My son younger one who followed this closely uh, debate four years ago and so on, said that how uh, 
how big TV stations downplayed him, like often when he was on the show, it got much more viewers, but they tried to sidetrack him, you know, to put him aside. It's not so, I totally agree with you, it's not that Trumpian jokes work and then who wants to listen to these boring uh, document, boring numbers and so on. No, I agree with you. Bernie did it in a way. For me, if you ask me for one thing, image even, which defines the last years, was, you remember, Trump inauguration, Bernie sitting alone there in a corner. Yes, actually, I should, I should, I should say. Uh, then this became the iconic image, overshadowing all those stupid poetry and songs or whatever. You know. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, 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 should, I should say, I, I really loved the uh, for the uh, the introduction to your book. Uh, at the end of the introduction, you say. Uh, what that is to be done, Lenin's demand for concrete analysis of the concrete situation is today more actual than ever. No simple universal formula can provide the answer. There are moments in which pragmatic support for modest progressive measures is needed. There are moments when a radical confrontation is the only way. And there are moments when a sobering silence and acute pair of men and speak more than a thousand words. So. Yeah, but it's really a concrete situation. This is why I agree with you. I'm not dismissing in the direction of like what some radical leftists are doing AOC. Basically, her judgment was the right one without naivety. We know, and now it's becoming clear how Biden will not be able to do it. But this was a mega pedagogical experience. We had to go through it. It would have been a catastrophe to say at the beginning, no. Biden will fail, let's just uh, oppose him, and so on and so on. Because, you know, these failures are never pure, simple failures. Failures leave traces. Here I disagreed years ago with Badiou when there was Occupy Wall Street. He said, just they were the true 1%, just a couple of relatively rich, educated sons. But I agree here, haha, with Chomsky, who said, yeah, they failed. It dissipated, disappeared, but it left a trace, you know, somewhere in, I will not use this obscurantist term, public unconscious, but there is a kind of a deep working public political memory. All this remains. So I'm not sure. So uh, can I, just to conclude, you can then yeah, cut yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Now comes the, the disgusting thing. And when I say disgusting, I really mean, uh, sorry, just that I find it, uh, I really mean disgusting. Uh, where are we today? But it's a necessary part against this poverty, new poverty and so on. Oh, on January 8, 2022, now, less than a week ago, Yahoo reported that uh, Reality, I wonder if you noticed this, that a reality star made $200,000 from, should I use the F word, the other one, not fuck, fart, from selling her fart in Mason jars. Now, she was taking, eating so much bean and so on to produce enough farts, so now 
it hurt her body. So now she's selling it through NFTs as, uh, as NFTs. You, uh, that, that is to say, you just buy it as a, so that you symbolically own a unique, her unique fart art. Now, what I find so fascinating, this is for me almost the truth of NFT. How? You know how millions, even if you take all of NFT, it's already billions of dollars are being spent, but in a way which, my God, we would have to think about it, what property means and so on. Mm -hmm. Because as some analysts pointed out, uh, NFT is a crazy attempt to introduce artificial scarcity into a domain where everything in principle could have been for free, free floating. And the madness, the paradox is that it doesn't even mean real scarcity, like documents still circulate freely and so on. And you can even make an NFT of an object which doesn't, you even don't have to prove that this object really exists. So mm -hmm. it's really a point of madness of how it's not only financial speculation, but the object of speculation itself becomes purely virtual. It's not necessary to be there. Now, I'm, uh, I'm not saying this is a perversion of a true function of money. I read somewhere a wonderful analysis mm. arguing against you saw, of course, you are a civilized man. You saw the movie or the novel Goldfinger, James Bond. Yeah, so The idea of bombing the gold reserves. The idea is if they are, uh, if they are bombed by a nuclear bomb, they are radiated, they cannot be used. So uh, those who have real gold, their gold will be 40 times more gaining value 40 times more expensive and so on. But I read an, a nice analysis which says, but why? I mean, the way, the way, uh, the way, uh, where is it in Kentucky somewhere, my God? Where is all the gold stored now? Most of the gold in, uh, what is that place called? Sorry. Sorry, uh, Fort Knox, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, Fort Knox, sorry. I'm getting all yeah. the scenario. But okay, but it doesn't really matter. You know what those in, uh, in power should have done? What if they succeeded in blocking the news that Fort Knox is radioactive, you don't have access to gold there? Nothing would have changed because we don't use that gold. It just has to be there presupposed as something, you know. You have from the very beginning this virtual dimension where basically you can cheat. Even rich people are doing this. I was always fascinated by this. You know that many stars who have, let's say, an ultra expensive diamond necklace. You make a perfect copy and then you have the real necklace in the bank or in the safe. But, you know, like you can cheat in principle. What I'm saying is that, <coughs> is that uh, 
is that some mad dimension which was from the beginning there is now exploding openly. And what fascinates me is that on the one hand, we have real needs, hunger, global warming, but on the other hand, we have these explosions. It's no longer marginal, it's billions of dollars already in this virtuality. It makes me really sad. Now, the last thing, just to conclude, mm -hmm. this brings us to the role of the state. Again, it's so fascinating to say again and again how, you know, state is just a puppet in corporation and so on. But my good friend, I mentioned him already, Alvaro Garcia Linera, the ex-vice president of Andre Morales of, Morales of Bolivia, who is also a great theoretician, he as a Marxist, he emphasizes this, drew attention to how surprising a thing, at least in the first couple of months, uh, the uh, COVID pandemic was, that something unheard of happened. Can I read this quote? It's long, but it's wonderful. For the first time in human history, vast numbers of people across the world have agreed to abandon their paid activities, to stop attending public uh, nation state, and so on. One should be here absolutely without any uh, prejudice. Okay, sorry, uh, uh, I don't want to, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, to stop attending public gatherings and confine themselves in their homes for weeks and months. We are living in a kind of general planetary strike, which has paralyzed most of the transport, commerce, production services. People have accepted confinement when asked to do so by the state institution, which justify the measure as a way to stop the spread of coronavirus and so on and so on. And Linera then points out that it wasn't, as Agamben thinks, the terror of the state. In many cases, in my own country, in UK, I remember, people wanted harsher measures. Bearing in mind the interest of economy, state didn't want to do it. But what Linera is right to point out, it is that, at least in the first, do you remember, month of panic. On the one hand, uh, society down there was in a panic. People, millions losing jobs, uh, uh, companies, especially small companies, disappearing and so on. There was a confusion. Internationally, states behaved in an egotistic way, international cooperation didn't work, blah, blah. So wasn't it this a kind of a, the greatest moment of state power? Weren't we all looking automatically towards state that, my gosh, society is a mess, only the state can do it. And Linera's conclusion, I love it as a non-totalitarian, is not just this was an illusion and so on. But no, of course, what the state then effectively did was they did meet some of these demands, a little bit of money to people. They also did the work for capital and so on and so on. But Linera's conclusion is that we, the left, shouldn't wait for some authentic anti-state revolution, but we should gather. We should gather the courage to admit that 
in future critical situations, new pandemic or global warming, uh, panic, fires, public authority is, is for us now at least the big agent which can really do it. Some friend of mine, like Badiou again, is here against state and for local communities. He said the solution to, uh, to uh, global warming and this ecological problem is that local communities take care. Independent committees of local, what are we doing, are we polluting, and so on and so on. I don't think this works. For a simple reason, we already talked about it, I think. Remember that ultra heat in uh, uh, southern, southwest Canada, northwest United States, Seattle to Vancouver, uh, 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 last summer, almost mm -hmm. 50 degrees Celsius. You cannot deal with this locally because it was absolutely clear, demonstrated by science, that this was a local effect. But this effect was the result of global disturbance of air currents and so on and so on. They may be doing many horrible things, people of there, but they were not responsible for this. They even established a nice model of how a global disturbance could then, when something is, uh, when something is blocks the normal air, large mass of air movement, then brings, uh, gives birth to this extreme locally. So again, I don't think local, local, uh, local self-control, local communities controlling themselves is a solution. No, because the phenomenon is global. The, the, uh, the, the causality is global. In this book, I think, or somewhere else, I take another example. In southern Chile, they have for a couple of years now terrible drought. But they are not doing anything. There are a little bit of agriculture. And scientists established a model, again, also in the southern hemisphere. So air currents are, uh, and uh, the temperature of the ocean, all this uh, led to, to drought there. So again, uh, I am not uh, magnifying the state or, or uh, naively believing in state. I'm just saying in situations of crisis, really global crisis when really scared, imagine, for example, even worse temperatures and so on. Like, I don't know, terrible heat up to over 50 degrees and so on. Now, when people will be in a panic, in today's situation, who can do it but the state? Maybe we will afterwards have another solution. But that's why, and that's Linera's point, being fully aware of all the problems with state and so on and so on, alienated, blah, blah. We shouldn't be afraid to use it as an instrument, maybe even against itself. It would be madness to pursue in this Badiou line of the authentic politics takes place outside of the state, the state is alienated. Yes, it is, but in desperate situation, we can use, as Linera points out nicely. Nonetheless, in some countries with popular pleasure, the state did some good things and so on and so on and so on. So we should hear, I think, uh, the 
crisis to come will for uh, will force us to change this paradigm of of uh, of what is authentic politics and to well in some sense rehabilitate nation states or even transnational authority as the only way to cope with the problems we are approaching and definitely and here i wanted to speak with albert your friend mm-hmm. like what would his answer be here like that is a uh, very good yeah that's a very good question because uh for this anarchist local approach okay what uh-huh. would he advise to do to the people there are other worse examples but let's say to the people in seattle and vancouver the last summer this is not their problem it didn't come from space from no it came as a global result of this great perturbance which is now happening uh, everywhere do you know that we talked about it already that at the same time in northern siberia mm-hmm. in a city close to arctic ocean there where winter te- temperatures are usually record low up to minus 50 degrees celsius mm-hmm. last summer they had 34 no I don't want to raise panic. Nobody knows what is happening. But the absolutely only solution I see here is science, global cooperation, and so on and so on. And when people say science is dogmatic with regard to pandemic, no, science is now openly admitting, admitting, this is what I like now, all the confusion with Omicron. Isn't science, the official science, more or less openly saying Sorry guys there is we are more and more discovering how many things we don't know. So I would like to have a science which would be able to be more dogmatic. No, everybody knows science cannot do it. I mean they are saying now and I don't think this can be back translated into yes because they are slaves to big pharmaceutical companies who would like to 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 vaccinate us again and again no it's not as simple as that there are signs of genuine panic yeah we did whatever we want please i hope i was not too bad again i repeat to you be a good censor <laughs>